As we get started here, I have a question for the kids. Do any of you have a rock collection? Yeah? Do you really? You have a collection of rocks? Where are they at? In your bedroom? Around your bedroom? Caleb and Josiah, where are your rocks? Yeah, yeah. Anyone else? Yes, yeah, some of the adults here. Do any of the adults have some special rocks laying around, either in your house or in the basement? Yes? Well, that's great. What makes rocks special? Their shape, their color, their texture, what they're used for, where they're from. I have a rock at home that's from a hill that I climbed in the highlands of Scotland. Others may look at your rock collection and see just a bunch of rocks. But you know, you know what makes those rocks special. Why are we talking about rocks? Because God has a rock collection. God has a rock collection. He has a prized collection of special stones. I'm looking at them right now. In this grassy field. Here they are. God's special stones are us, his church, you and me, we are God's living stones. When the world looks at us, when unbelievers look at the church, what do they see? They see just a bunch of hard rocks. But where the world sees only rocks, God sees something beautiful. Regardless of what the world thinks of you, regardless of how unbelievers treat you, regardless of your status in this world, this passage from God's Word reminds you, it reminds us, of our true status as living stones built on Jesus, the cornerstone. We are part of nothing less than the ever-expanding temple of God. And as His priests, we mediate God's presence to the world. As we reflect on God's Word this evening, may we see the church as God sees it. May we see the beauty of what God is building. May we see ourselves and one another, not as a bunch of hard rocks, but as the living stones of his temple, his priests who proclaim his excellencies. You may have some special rocks at home, but they're nothing like God's collection of rocks. There's nothing that compares to his collection. So as we get started, let me set this passage in context. We've been studying the letter of 1 Peter. And these verses, verses 4 through 10, bring part 1 to an end. 1 Peter has three main parts. Part 1 began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, and it continues through the end of this passage, chapter 2, verse 10. You could say that part 1, the opening of this letter, is all about reassurance. Reassurance for God's people. Why do God's people need reassurance? Because we are elect exiles who suffer for the sake of Christ. That's why. People like us who suffer for the sake of Christ need God's reassurance. Now, in this particular passage, we find the main point in verses 4 through 5. Once again, this is an overview. So the main point is in verses 4 and 5. And then in the rest of the verses, chapters, uh, verses 6 through 10, Peter backs up his point with Scripture. So if you look in your Bible at the start of verse 6, Peter writes, For it stands in Scripture, 
where it stands in Scripture. At this point, through the end, Peter cites and alludes to many Old Testament passages to prove his point. So what we'll do is we'll slow down through verses 4 and 5, and then we'll speed up through verses 6 to 10. That's what we'll do this evening. So as I said, his main point is in verse, verses 4 and 5. And notice that Peter doesn't start by talking about us. He doesn't start by talking about you and me. He starts by talking about the living stone. A living stone. So who's this stone? Who's the rock? You may remember that Peter's name means rock. Jesus once said to him, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. But the rock in this verse is not Peter, although that's the meaning of his name. Who's this living stone? It's the Messiah. It's Jesus. Now, that doesn't seem like a flattering title to me. How would you like to be called a stone? I imagine it's not what we... Uh, would initially think is flattering or honoring. So where does Peter get this? A stone? Well, he gets it, on the one hand, from the Old Testament. As we'll see in a few verses, Peter quotes three Old Testament passages that speak of the stone. But Peter also gets this stone image from Jesus himself. Do you remember the parable of the tenants? The parable of the tenants. Jesus said that a master planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants. When the harvest came, he sent his servants to get the fruit, but the tenants, what did they do? They beat and killed and stoned the master's servants. Then as a last resort, the master sent his son, and what did, what did the tenants do? They killed him too. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and Pharisees, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? as a disciple of Jesus, who knows? We don't know when Jesus spoke this parable and who exactly was there, but Peter probably heard him tell this parable. He would have heard Jesus refer to himself as the living messianic stone. So Peter knew this parable, but that's not all. He also witnessed to how this parable played out in real life. So Peter knew that Jesus was the Messiah. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter's response was, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that Jesus was the son whom the master sent to the vineyard. But Peter also witnessed the rejection of the Messiah. Before his very eyes, just like the master's servants were rejected and then the master's son was rejected and killed, Peter saw the Jews take Jesus and nail him to a cross. And Peter witnessed, three days later, the resurrection. He witnessed how Jesus, the rejected stone, became the chosen and precious cornerstone as he rose from the grave. So Peter knew that Jesus was not simply a stone like any other stone. He was a living, literally a living stone. In verse 4, Peter says that Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. What Peter's doing us in, the, doing in this verse is simply reminding us of the gospel. The good news that Jesus died for our sins and was raised again 
according to the Scriptures. Who rejected the living stone? Notice that Peter doesn't say that the living stone was rejected by the Jews. The living stone, he says, was rejected by men. By men. You could say, in other words, he was rejected by people. By you and me. Peter will later say in these verses that God caught us out of darkness. What does darkness look like? What does darkness look like? It looks like many things. But at the heart of darkness is rejecting Jesus. Rejecting the Son, the Messiah. I spoke with some neighbors recently, just last week, and I learned that they are Jews. And I asked my neighbors what they think of Jesus. And one of them said, he was just like any other carpenter. Friends, that is darkness. That is darkness. To look on Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of sinners, and to reject him like any other carpenter, that, friends, is darkness. And that's what we were stumbling around in before God called us out of that darkness into the light of his Son. We were once in that darkness, but God mercifully called us into the marvelous light of his resurrected Son. We're familiar with that verse. God called us out of darkness into light. And as we reflect on these earlier verses, I think, wow, that, that's context. That's context for the darkness that God called us out of a rejection of the Son to receiving Him by God's mercy. Let me make a point of application before we move on to verse 5. If Jesus was rejected, if He was rejected by the world, what should you and I expect? If Jesus was rejected by the world, what should we expect as followers of Jesus? In some way, shape, or form, you should expect rejection by unbelievers. If the world rejected Jesus, will the world accept you? If the world hated Jesus, will the world love you? That's right. It's not if, but when we face rejection for our faith. Rejection from an unbelieving spouse. Rejection from unbelieving children. Rejection from unbelieving parents or neighbors or co-workers or employees. The list can go on and on. Remember, brothers and sisters, that you are following in the footsteps of Christ. You are following in his footsteps. If the world rejected Jesus, the world, in some way, shape, or form, will reject you. It's not a question of if, but when. But if Jesus was chosen and precious in God's sight, then as a Christian, so are you. You are chosen and precious in the sight of God. Once again, as we'll see throughout this letter, if Christ suffered and then was glorified, that will be, that will be the pattern for our lives as followers of Jesus. Suffering, then glory. So in verse 4, Peter uses the imagery of a living stone to remind us of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Rejected, but chosen. What happens as you come to him? As you come to him, what happens? What happens as sinners like us 
come to the resurrected and reigning Messiah in repentance and faith? Well, Peter tells us in verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This verse describes two things. It describes who we are and what we do. First, it describes who we are. We are living stones. What is true of Jesus, the living stone, is true of all who are united to him by faith. If Jesus is a living stone, then as those united to him, we too are living stones. If Jesus is alive and resurrected, then so are we. We wait for the resurrection of our body. Yes, that's true. We wait for the resurrection of our body. Our outer self has yet to be raised, but our inner self has already been raised. You could say that at the core of your being, at the core of your being, your inner self, you will never be more resurrected than you already are. You will never be resurrected more than you already are. You are alive in Christ. And as living stones, we are being built up. Other scriptures talk about how we build one another up. But that's not the focus here. The focus here is not on what we do, but on what God does. And what is he doing? He is building us up as his spiritual house. God is building his temple. Now think about the temple. We could spend a lot of time thinking about the theme of temple and God's presence. So here's a quick, quick, quick overview. Think back to Genesis. Was there a temple in the Garden of Eden? Not the sort of temple that you walked into through the doors, but the entire garden, you could say, was the temple of God. God was with Adam and Eve. The garden was his temple, and he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. In other words, take God's presence, expand his temple to the ends of the earth. Adam, as we all know, he failed in his temple-building mission and was cast out of God's presence. But nevertheless, God called a people to himself and dwelt with them. First the tabernacle and then the temple were the places of God's presence. But like Adam, Israel also failed in its mission. Instead of mediating God's presence to the nations, God's people worshipped idols like the nations. They brought idols into the temple. But God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the temple, the capital T temple, where God dwells with his people. Adam sinned, Israel sinned, we failed, but Jesus didn't. Christ died for our sins. He rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven. He sent his spirit. And what's he doing now? What is the reigning resurrected son doing now? Like a master architect, like a master builder, he's bringing his people, all of his chosen people, as living stones to be part of the ever-expanding temple of God. That's what Jesus is doing. So where's the place of God's presence? The place of his dwelling is his spiritual house, his temple, his church. It's us. So we Christians are the living stones of the temple of God. And not only is God building you up, not only is this 
individual. Not only is God building you up, making you more like Christ, he's also adding more and more living stones to his temple as sinners repent and put their faith in Jesus. So who are we? We are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. It's interesting here how Peter speaks of us not only as the temple, but also as those who serve in it. Imagine being both temple and priests at the same time. Um, but we are. The temple and the priests, those who serve in it. And what do priests do? We don't have time to explore that, that theme as well. But at this point, Peter transitions from who we are to what we do. What do priests do? We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What spiritual sacrifices do you think he has in mind? What are spiritual sacrifices? In a general and comprehensive way, or in a comprehensive sense, spiritual sacrifices are anything we do by the power of the Spirit. So, it's when we present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Those are spiritual sacrifices. So, our day-to-day -day acts of obedience, those are spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. But Peter probably has that but more in mind. We could be more specific. Because in verse 10, Peter will say that we are a royal priesthood. There's the theme of priesthood again. So that we might proclaim God's excellencies. So, the sacrifices that Peter has in mind in verse 5 are more specifically the sacrifices of praise. So to offer spiritual sacrifices is to proclaim God's name so that people will join in worshiping God. You could say that our priestly calling is doxological evangelism. Doxological evangelism. We sing God's praises so that others will join in the chorus. That's what we do as priests. In other words, think of it this way. How will the world come to salvation? How do unbelievers come to salvation? Through our praises, through your praises, as the priests of God, you mediate God's presence to an unbelieving world. You are the mediators of his presence in this world. The world may look at the church and see just rocks, but God sees something beautiful, really stunningly beautiful. He's building his temple through royal priests like us who proclaim his excellency. So don't overlook what God thinks of your spiritual sacrifices. Peter says that they are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. They are acceptable to God. Let that truth sink into your heart for a few moments. None of your good works are perfect in this life. Yes, that's true. But God accepts them. God accepts them. He accepts them. He delights in your strivings to follow after Jesus. I especially find this encouraging when I think about gathered worship. Where else do we especially see doxological evangelism than in the context of gathered worship, as we sing together God's praises? 
And we often say that although gathered worship is the best place to be on the best day of the week, it's often the hardest place to be on the hardest day of the week. That is true for many of us. So maybe, like me, you're a parent of young children, or you struggle with social anxiety, or you've been sinned against by a fellow church member. Maybe you're sick, distracted, hurting, lonely, overwhelmed, ashamed. Gathered worship can be hard for many, many, many reasons. We acknowledge that. That's often the case. And what does God think of you as you show up and do your best to worship him? What does God think of you? What does he think of your praises? However distracted, however weak and feeble and frail they are, he delights in them. He accepts them through Jesus Christ. He accepts you through Christ. And he accepts your praises. Before moving on from verses 4 and 5, let me point out, let me point out something. There is a big difference between a rock collection at your home and what Peter says here about the church. Probably many differences. Analogies break down at some point. But a big difference is that these living stones are joined together. They're joined together. I imagine that if you have special rocks at home, they're not connected. They're not bound together. But these stones are. They're joined together as one building to witness collectively to the excellencies of God. The problem, of course, is that the church is often viewed like a rock collection, like a random or voluntary assortment of of rocks that just happen to be together. Or the Christian life is viewed like it can be lived just as well, if not better than... uh, um, Let me say that again. Or the Christian life is viewed like it can be lived just as well, if not better than uh, living it in the context of the church. Like, we don't need the church, do we? Can I live the Christian life apart from the church? But Peter doesn't imagine stones scattered here, there, and everywhere. He doesn't imagine an assortment of rocks. These stones are joined together. What they do together, they can't do on their own. Peter describes a corporate identity and a corporate calling. He's not first and foremost describing in these verses what I am and what I do, but who we collectively are and what we do as the church. At this point, at the end of verse 5, Peter moves from saying, he moves from saying, let me tell you something that will take your breath away. This is what God's building. This is what they do. Now he moves to, let me show you from the scriptures. So, in verses 6 through 8, Peter begins by citing three Old Testament scriptures. They speak of the stone. And as you listen to these verses again, see if you can pick out the two kinds of stone that Jesus is like. Jesus is described as being like two different kinds of stones. So see if you can pick out what he's like. The two kinds of stones that he's like. So Peter writes, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, 
the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So what is Jesus like? He's like two different kinds of stone. First, he's like a cornerstone. He's like the foundation of a building. Everything else is built upon him. But he's also like another kind of stone. Did anyone pick it out? Any of the kids know? Liam? Yes. Yes. That's right. Yep. Yes. Thank you, Liam. A stumbling stone. That's true, that's true, and that's, that's uh, bringing in other passages. You're right, Jimmy. Do you remember when uh, the Bible talks about King Nebuchadnezzar having a dream and seeing a statue? Well, I know what that statue represents. That represents every kingdom, every power, that will ever rule this world till the end of time. And you're right to refer to Daniel, because Daniel, in, in one of those dreams, uh, sees a rock that grows, and... Um, yeah, exactly. Thank you, Jimmy. So here, he's described as a cornerstone and a stumbling stone. So some people fall over him, and others stand upon him. He's a source of stability for some, and a source of stumbling for others. So what are we to take from these verses? For one, they remind us of how fundamentally divisive Jesus is. Here's what I mean. He's the dividing point for all of humanity. Everyone must either accept him or reject him. Everyone either stumbles on him or is saved by him. So there's no, no one can remain neutral. He's the dividing point. Everyone either joins him or is against him. And as you well know, as you well know, this becomes very personal and very painful when marriages families, relationships, the society that we live in is divided over Christ. That's why these verses are so encouraging. You may face all kinds of shame and difficulty from unbelievers in this world, but what does God say of you? What does God say? Whoever believes in Jesus, the cornerstone, will never ever be put to shame. As Peter goes on to say, the honor is for you who believe. On the last day, unbelievers will be put to shame forever, but you will be honored. As I studied and reflected on this passage, I thought about how I spent so much time and money going to seminary. And in the eyes of the world, that was a waste. Why would you do such a thing? And I can feel the, the pull. I, I, can, I can feel the pull to to think that somehow that's true but this verse reminds me no someone who trusts in christ and whatever the context you will never be put to shame you will never ever be put to shame and disappointed now as many of you know we're studying pilgrim's progress in sunday school this summer we've met a number of unbelievers so far we've met pliable obstinate 
worldly wise man. Um, this morning we met Mr. Legality. Some others. Why do these people on why do these people stumble on Christ? Why why are they persistent in their unbelief? Peter tells us in verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word. And why do they disobey? They disobey because they were destined to do so by God. They were destined to disobey and stumble. So every man, woman, boy, and girl is responsible for whether or not they believe in Jesus. Everyone is responsible for whether or not they believe in Jesus. At the same time, it's also true that God predestines whether or not everyone will believe. In one breath, Peter has no trouble saying that both of these things are true. Everyone is responsible. And God predestines belief and unbelief. Why does Peter add this side note about predestination? It's almost like a throwaway comment. Why does he add, as they were destined to do? Why does he throw that in there? His point is not to stir up a controversy over predestination. His point is a pastoral one. He's not trying to stir up controversy, but to comfort God's people. He's writing to Christians like us who are confused and frustrated and hurt by an unbelieving world. He's writing to Christians like us who are shamed and dishonored in some way, shape, or form by unbelievers. He wants you to know that nothing, no one, not even unbelief, is outside the sovereign rule of your God. Nothing, not even unbelief, is outside of His rule. He's writing to comfort you. He's writing to reassure you in the midst of this world that you live in. In contrast to those who stumble on Christ and disobey as they were destined to do, what's true of us? What's true of you? What's true of Christian as he marches on the journey to the celestial city? Let me read verses 9 and 10 again. We won't spend much time here, but listen to this resounding declaration of our status and ministry as believers. Where the world sees only rocks, God sees something stunningly beautiful. Listen to these verses. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the church, the church is no ordinary rock collection. This is nothing like what you have at home or in your basement or in some keepsakes box somewhere. The church of Jesus Christ is the new and restored and true Israel, the living stones of God's ever-expanding temple, his priests who proclaim his praises and witness to his great mercy. That's us. That's you and me. You are God's temple. Now expand the temple. You are his temple. Now see that it grows. See that it expands. Proclaim God's excellency so that more and more dead stones become living stones. So that more and more people come out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that more and more people who were once not his people become his people. So that more and more people believe in Christ and are joined to this ever-expanding people of God. Revelation tells us of a coming day when God will make a new heavens and a new earth. 
a new heavens and a new earth. And on that day, there will be a, well, almost like a, a ribbing-cutting ceremony, unlike ever before. God's temple-building project will be finally complete. His rock collection of living stones will be displayed for all to see. His people will gather in his presence forever. In the church of Jesus Christ, in you and me, God is truly doing something beautiful. Amen. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage that, that lifts us, in a sense, that lifts us out of the fog that we experience in so much of everyday life. It lifts us out of the fog and reminds us of the glorious thing that you are doing in building up your church. Father, thank you for being so merciful to us in drawing us out of darkness into your light. And we pray, knowing of the many, many unbelievers in our lives, that you'll be merciful to them and cause them to be joined to Christ, the cornerstone, and to be built up together with us as the temple of God. Father, please help us to proclaim your praises so that others join in the chorus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.